0: fearful symmetry. It's the craziest thing, but I can't remember how I got here. It's a day after Thanksgiving. My father is in a very strange place. Nothing is where it should be. People are talking to him, but who are they? What do they want? Where are his pants? What is this thing on his skin? He tries to unravel the IV cord and pull off the patch. Barbara tells him to stop. He does. Until a minute later when he discovers it all again. He's 91 and has what's called mild stable dementia. He's in this hospital because Barbara, my stepmother, felt he might have had a heart attack or something. Turns out his heart's fine, probably some heartburn, but once you're admitted, it's hard to get the hell out, so he's stuck there at least for the night. My father asks where he is. The word hospital seems to explain nothing. The room itself is constantly morphing into someone else's house, not his house, although he once had a house. This wasn't his house, was it? He looks at me. Do I have a house? He is a man with persistent and impossible questions. How did I get here? When are we leaving? Did I drive my car? He doesn't remember any ambulance. No answer satisfies him. He's wondering where he slept last night. Twice he refers to some job of his, but he hasn't worked in decades. Time is blurring, bending. An old clock on the wall vexes him. He says, it's not moving, is it? It's night. My arrival has meant that my stepmother can go home and get some sleep. They live in a house not far away in a gated community outside Fort Lauderdale. Now she's gone and he can't understand where she went. He's worried about her disappearance. After a while, he remembers something and explains to me that she must have left to take care of some child. He can't quite remember the name. Some eight or nine-year-old kid that, of course, she just can't leave alone in the house. I have no idea what child he's imagining. Just then, he manages to pull out the IV, leaving a bloody wound and new confusion. It takes me a while just to find someone who might come in and replace it. The halls of the hospital are unreal in the evening hours, dreary and dreamlike. There's something going on within each room. And it doesn't look good. When the nurse finally comes much later, she doesn't disguise her irritation with my father. He doesn't seem to notice. Soon he asks me again where Barbara is. His agitation comes in waves, but the waves are getting higher. I say she'll be returning soon enough, that maybe he should get some sleep. He says he hopes so, but you could see he's afraid she's genuinely gone, that she might be hurt or something. He can't sleep, He's stuck in the middle of a terrible puzzle. At one point he says, it's getting scary. I feel that way too. The next day he's doing all right. Less nervous, more chill. Barbara and I spend the day with him. We're waiting to get the green light to leave the hospital. It's taking forever. I'm also eager to speak to the mysterious cardiologist who woke him up in the middle of the night and gave him medicine for a heart condition that he doesn't have. I'm told he'll be back any minute, but I never do get to see the guy. Mostly I just want to get my father home. He seems to be taking things in stride. He's more accustomed to the room now, even though he doesn't have the foggiest idea where he is. He cheerfully eats any hospital meal put in front of him. You know how some folks change character when they get dementia? how they can become mean or shift into an utterly alien personality. Not my old man. He's pretty affable, more than I would be. He's friendly with people, even the hospital workers who sometimes talk to him like he's a mechanical thing, or maybe they're the mechanical things. A hospital is not the easiest place to keep your dignity. A nurse comes in, friendly. She asks my father his name and age. If Barbara was here, she would rush to answer those questions, and they would tell her not to. They're evaluating his cognition. She knows that, but doesn't want the reminder of what she knows. But right now, Barbara's out for coffee, and when I hear the query, I feel myself stiffen. I don't want him to be embarrassed. The question seems so intrusive, direct. There's a long pause, terrible to me, as if he's really trying to remember, and of course he can't. And then, a small voice comes out of his mouth. Hal. Not Harold, the short version, Hal. And he gives his birthday, too. I just... I feel a wave of relief. There's no question, though, that his memory is shit. I doubt he knows who I am at the moment, and at times he doesn't seem to exactly know who Barbara is. He's friendly enough with her, but he's been talking to her as if he's having a conversation with a very nice woman he just met. She says something about Florida, and my father asks her how long she's lived there. She tells him they've both lived here for quite a while. He tries to process this. Later, she tells a story about my father working in Washington, D.C. He's surprised. How did you know that? She laughs and said, oh, I've heard all about you. They've been married 50 years. Later, I jokingly refer to Barbara as his wife, as in, well, we'll see what your wife thinks about that idea. He asks me, who's my wife? Barbara, who's sitting right next to him, says, me. My father says, oh. Then he says to no one in particular, what a world. On the drive back to their house, Barbara points out things that they're passing. She asks him questions. He doesn't seem to recognize anything. I can see she's a little fearful that the stint in the hospital may have taken a real hit on his faculties. When he enters a house, though, it's touching to watch the waves of recognition. You can see his growing delight as he sees and acknowledges one familiar thing, then another, then another, each sight like a gift he's been given that he had totally forgotten about. He's home, even if he doesn't quite know that. Many years ago, the kid sat in his high school history class. A topic was being debated. It is 1945 and you are President Harry Truman. Do you drop the bomb? Do you drop an atomic bomb on Hiroshima, Japan? Do you drop an atomic bomb on the men, women and children of Hiroshima? The kid already knew a little something about the effects of that bomb. Some 80,000 humans killed that day, injuries and radiation sickness eventually killing another 60,000. He saw images of the city leveled, charred, corpses seared into the ground, children burnt and disfigured but was dropping the bomb the right thing to do. This was apparently the historic question. There was some disagreement about the matter. Certain experts claimed that the bombing saved huge numbers of American soldiers. It was the only way to end the war quickly. The Japanese were aggressors. They would never surrender. Other experts argued that it was unnecessary. There were alternatives. Japan was already defeated and poised to surrender. The victims were mostly civilians. Some even asserted that the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and the one three days later on Nagasaki really served as a warning to the next enemy on the horizon, the Russians, to back off. The kid didn't know all the historic truth that day in the classroom. He doesn't know it today. But a simple, penetrating idea began to take shape in his mind. This idea, the mass murder of innocent people, can never be justified. And so he led the debate against the bombing. Not that anyone really cared. His high school history class was filled with the typical rave, slackers, jocks, misfits. Few gave a damn about this subject or any other. But he remembers that a girl, arguing for the bombing, appealed to their patriotism. We are Americans, aren't we? We were. And when the vote was taken, the class always took a vote at the end of these things. The kids' view did not prevail. In fact, the class vote was nearly unanimous. The bomb on Hiroshima dropped again.
1: world will note that the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, a military base. That was because we wished in the first attack to avoid, so far as possible, the killing of civilians. But that attack is only a warning of things to come. It is an awful responsibility which has come to us. We thank God that it has come to us instead of to our enemies. And we pray that he may guide us to use it in his ways and for his purposes. From Tehran and the Crimea from San Francisco and Berlin, we shall continue to march together to a lasting peace and a happy world. Ladies and gentlemen, you have just heard the President of the United States, and now our national anthem. Or be of I can sing you tender songs of love. I can give you merry tales and joyous laughter. I can transport you to the realms of music. I can call you to join in the rhythmic dance. I can lull the tapes to sweet repose, awaken in the ancient heart, soft memories of youthful days. No matter what may be your mood,
0: The man on the horse. All over the world you can find statues of generals and kings and conquerors, each in heroic pose atop their mighty steed. They are the most courageous of men. They are the victors. They are the destroyers. They will ride onward forever, full of godly purpose and power. You've seen that kind of bullshit, right? But for all the manufactured heroism of such monuments, your eyes, your eyes spend more time not on the figure of the great man, but on the horse, because we understand intuitively that it's a horse that's beautiful and noble. It's a horse that we love, not the puffed up man. There are rare monuments depicting a horse who has no rider. I know one of them quite well. A bronze horse. Not glorious. Not rendered mid-gallop or majestically rearing. Not standing strong and proud. This horse of mine is just tired. I first saw him standing alone on a spacious plot of land before an old history museum in Richmond, Virginia. He was gaunt, his ribs exposed, his head hung low. He had no rider, but you could feel a certain burden, a weight that he still endured. They called him the War Horse. The inscription on his pedestal read, In memory of the one and one half million horses and mules of the Confederate and Union armies who were killed, were wounded, or died from disease, in the Civil War. Now that was something I did not know. It's hard enough to grasp that more than 600,000 men were killed in the Civil War, but I never thought about horses. These fallen horses and mules were innocent, blameless. And so for me, this war horse came to speak for the multitudes of blameless creatures, including humans, swept up and bewildered and shattered by the madness and stupidity of war. And when have you last seen a monument that speaks to that? The best time to see the war horse was always at night. He was illuminated by a spotlight, his solitary visage striking amid the darkness, his form casting an enormous shadow on the adjacent building. He never slept and never could sleep. And then, at some point, someone must have tagged the sculpture with graffiti. One day I saw that my horse was now enclosed by dark metal bars. Now the war horse seemed not only lonesome and exhausted, but imprisoned in a kind of cage. And when you walked up close and looked between the bars, you began to understand something of his fate. I felt for that horse standing alone, saddled with the heavy weight of history. Once I returned from a long trip to find that the war horse was gone. The museum, as it turns out, had removed the horse from its plinth and moved it to a place obscured from the street, to the side of the building, closer to the new entrance. It was freed from the iron bars, but now trapped in a setting excruciatingly banal. It stood next to a parking garage on one side, a parking lot on the other, cramped midway between some steps and a wheelchair ramp. This new placement felt degrading, diminishing, as if the statue was just another object that might be given a glance when entering or leaving the building. There was no longer a proper space to consider the horse, no space to hear what he was saying Nor was the War Horse sculpture a monument any longer, standing open in the community, seen by thousands of people passing every day. And I noticed that the museum had changed something else too. When they transferred the words of the old inscription onto a nearby sign, they gave the statue a new title, Bridled Veterans. Bridled Veterans. Yes, these horses of war were courageous soldiers who rushed to enlist in the noble cause, full of furious hatred for the enemy, four-legged warriors who whistled battle hymns through their bloodied nostrils and charged on command into the murderous fray, gladly sacrificing their lives for the eternal glory of their two-legged masters, bridled veterans. This is a sentimentality and romantic propaganda long spun by lovers of war. The reality is much more plain. The horses were slaves used by men in the service of killing other men. And so the war horse stands, weary, exhausted, ignored, but still bearing witness to what men are and what they do. I have a memory, of a memory, of a dream, when I was a child. This
2: episode of Fearful Symmetry featured I true stories four, written, produced, and five. performed by Bob Paris. Music I was and out sound art somewhere. came from the Trumpeteers, Travis Austin, Nathan Halverson, MFP, Daniel Birch, Loyalty Freak Music, and Ross Kinder. For scary. more information, please go to fearfulsymmetry.org.
0: I started running. I had to get away. I had to get home. And as I ran, I would pass by Munster after Munster after Munster. And I kept running. I kept running. Finally, I arrived home where I could be safe with my family, my father, my sisters, but I saw that they had turned into monsters too. I was overwhelmed and suddenly I had a desperate desire to be a monster. I just wanted to be a monster.
2: Go down to the river You wash yourself, you steam away the skin Oh, you drink all the water
0: from the silver The cup of life you swallow to begin and Fall is calm, it smells like a sweater sun is broke, the harvest, time within, and all these chapters where they make you feel like a writer. While flowers hold the burden of your sins And mirrors cannot reveal.
2: This episode of Fearful Symmetry Monsters featured true stories written, produced, and performed by Bob Paris. Music and sound art came from the trumpeteers. Travis Austin, Nathan Halverson, MFP, Daniel Birch, Loyalty Freak Music, and Raw Kinder. For more information, please go to fearfulsymmetry.org.